A.W. Tozer, in The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We're in a new sermon series called Lenses, and today I get to introduce this simple idea that has huge ramifications for our lives. Jesus, for the believer, is the lens. The cross is the lens by which we view all of Scripture. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that when we open up your Scriptures, it's you speaking to us. I ask that you would help us to grow to know you better, and to look more like you. God, I pray wherever we're connecting in from, on whatever device, on whatever platform, that we would take this time, turn off distractions, and make it sacred. That we would be willing to truly meet with you and then expect you to move in our hearts and lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. A.W. Tozer is an ODG, an old dead guy or old dead gal. And it sounds like an insult, but it's not. Around here, we really like learning from those who have come before us, those who have suffered well, those who have followed Jesus and have written or spoken or acted in such a way that dozens of years later, their impact is still being felt. And A.W. Tozer is one of those pastors and leaders. He said this, and I'll repeat it again, what comes into mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let's jump in to the Gospel of Matthew Chapter 5, in red letters, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is speaking. It's one of his longest sermons or talks that we read about in the gospel accounts. And he introduces an idea that can be really confusing. It's a conversation I've had with Jewish friends and Jewish students alike. What does Jesus really mean when he says, I'm not here to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. If you continue reading the gospel accounts, the first few books of the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus tends to do things that catch people by surprise. Even his followers, his disciples, his friends are often surprised by the authority in which he teaches, but also in how his view on certain scriptures and prophets, he seems to reinterpret or reimagine what the initial meaning or application could be. And it brings us to this idea, building on the concept that Jesus is the lens. First, Jesus is the lens that we as believers are to view Scripture. That we actually need to read not front to back, but from cross backwards. That we need to recognize that God's redemptive hand and His redemptive plan from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, has to do with Jesus. See, the Bible, this book, isn't a manual for life. It's not a way to success or riches, and it's actually not even a list of guidelines of do's and don'ts. This book is an invitation. It's a means to an end, because there is a perfect theology. It's not a doctrine. It's not a denomination. It is Jesus. And for us as believers, Jesus becomes the lens by which we view Scripture. 
Now that can be a little bit difficult. Maybe we're used to Sunday school stories and lessons that we learned. Maybe as we read the Old Testament, we want to apply it now immediately, thousands of years later, languages, countries, and cultures apart. But what's beautiful about the person of Jesus is that he gives us an opportunity to see the fullness of who God is. See, there isn't necessarily a conflict between God the Father and Jesus the Son. Instead, Jesus is the best, fullest, most clear example of who God is. Now, I know that may take a moment for you to catch on, and it took me a while to deconstruct and reconstruct that in my own theological beliefs. But Jesus is getting at something that's incredibly important. To those who are listening in first century Middle East context, what he's saying is both scandalous and comforting. It's scandalous in that he's saying things aren't going to continue as they always were. It's comforting in saying that things aren't going to completely disappear either. Jesus is providing in the flesh God's perspective on what matters most in the redemptive plan of humankind. Sometimes theologians or commentators talk about this as cruciform theology or having a Christological reading of Scripture. Now, this is important because this is not just common in our religious tradition, but many others. It's this idea of progressive revelation. And we know this, even though we don't use that term in our relationships, in our friendships, family relationships, and even romantic relationships. It's the more you get to know someone, the truer your knowledge of them is. The more we read in Scripture, when we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the fuller, clearer, and bigger picture we get of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and in other places in the Gospel, Jesus is making a claim. He's making a claim that ends up in a religious and political trial that leads to his execution. He's making this audacious and radical claim that Scripture that God himself should be viewed from the point of Jesus. He says this to his followers in another way. He says that the way to the Father is through me. And the original listeners were used to getting to the Father through ritual, through spiritual practices, through priests, and through prophets. But Jesus is introducing a new status quo. And he is now saying that I am the lens. But get this, he's not just saying that he's the lens for which we're to view Scripture. He's saying he's the lens for which we're to view the world around us. I think it was Spurgeon, another ODG, who said, it's important for the pastor, for the preacher, to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and to proclaim truth. A lot of times... There's this debate that goes on in circles of believers, in churches, in conversations. And it seems to me like the debate has to do with, well, I shouldn't have any lens or any filter as I read Scripture and try to apply it. But that's not necessarily true or right. I want to share this example. A few years ago at freshman orientation at American University, A man and his daughter came up to our table. We were telling students about Chi Alpha. And he began to ask, do you preach the whole Bible? Well, what pastor or minister would say no to that, right? But what he was asking was, 
do you preach the whole Bible in the way that it's been taught to me? He was really asking about what is our lens. He was asking about our denominational practices, our ministry philosophy. It reminds me of another time when I was on church staff in rural Georgia and a new family was visiting and they were coming from a large Baptist church in the state of Alabama. And they basically said, is this church going to be teaching truth like our old church? And I had to look at them and say, no, we are not. We do preach the whole Bible, but your expectations are very different from the reality of our expression. There seems to be this one upmanship that we can easily fall into in claiming that we just read the text and apply it. But the truth is nobody just reads the text and applies it. We all have an interpretive lens. And I've found that those who claim to have no lens typically have a lens that's very conservative in terms of theology and politics. It's very literal or historical critical in terms of their interpretive framework. See, Jesus is doing something unique. He is saying that he is the lens for which we are to view the story of God. You and I have the opportunity this semester, not necessarily to remove all filters or lenses, but to make sure the lenses that we're using to view scripture, those around us and the circumstances on our campus and in our city, in a way that keeps Jesus a part of it. Not in a way that aligns with either political system, not in a way that maybe aligns with a certain denomination or theological persuasion, but we are to make sure that what we believe has to do with Jesus. One of the first life groups that I had the privilege of leading here in D.C. about 10 years ago, we were going through one of the Gospels and we asked this question, how is Jesus in the Gospels different than the cultural representative of Jesus the cultural representation of Jesus in Western American society. What we are really asking is the things that we've heard, the values that we've been taught, the stories that we've held on to, they're not necessarily bad, but do they come from Scripture and from the life of Jesus, or do they come from someplace else? Jesus finds himself in trouble a lot with the religious elite. And yet, those who are on the outside of society seem to enjoy every moment with him. I think that's important for us to really think about. See, Jesus wasn't seeking approval or validation. Instead, he wanted to bring healing to those that were hurting. Now, I think many of us that might be studying this together today, we are totally okay with offending the religious elite. We are totally fine with offending those that might have a conservative outlook on theology or the world around us. But I do think sometimes our temptation, our struggle, is that we seek validation in cultural acceptance. It's why, for instance, we seem to cheer or get really excited when a movie star, an athlete, a politician says that they're Christian, says that they're from our branch of Christianity, our denomination, our circle. It lends us credibility, but Jesus never sought credibility from the circumstances or crowds around him. He knew he was credible because of who he was in the Father. And what's incredible is that the cross allows us to make the same claim. We too are chosen, we too can believe, and we too are rooted in the love and in the fullness of God. 
Jesus makes this point often, especially towards the end of his ministry, as he was preparing his friends, those disciples, to greet, to meet the arrival of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus one time says that it's better for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit could come. And then he says, you guys are going to do greater things than I did. He wasn't asking the disciples to perform miracles at a greater scale. He was speaking of the access that the disciples would now have because of his conquering of death, because of his resurrection, how close that they could live in tune with the Holy Spirit. As I think about my own faith journey, the valleys, the mountains, the waiting periods, the the times that seemed really exciting, and then the times that seemed full of disillusionment, I realize that the farther that I drift away from Jesus, the more likely I am to follow a religion, to follow a set of beliefs that someone I trust has created or maybe that I've created for myself. Jesus intends for us to see Him as the lens. He intends for us to read stories in the Old Testament with knowledge of the cross, with knowledge that Jesus is victorious over sin and over death, with knowledge that you and I no longer have to go through a priest, we no longer have to kill some animals to get the attention of the Father, but because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have access. We have closeness. We have proximity. Last week, we talked about it by really discovering what Emmanuel meant, God with us. Maybe you've been watching or listening to our podcast and and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. I really want you to explore this semester, learning about who he is and what he says about you. The beautiful thing about Christianity is it's not just asking us to pursue this idea, but it's introducing us to a person who's already pursuing us. See, God has been pursuing you at least twice and probably many more times. He pursues you in creation and He pursues you at the cross. Now, I want to be honest. Following Jesus does not make your problems go away. Following Jesus isn't just filled with joyous moments of kumbaya and worship. Following Jesus isn't just about gathering with other Christians in safe spaces and sanctuaries. No, following Jesus is about doing the will of the Father, even when it's difficult. Becoming a Christian isn't about what we could get, but it's really recognizing what we've been given, and in response, how we can give back to God. What's really interesting as we read these letters in the New Testament from Paul, he's basically doing ministry socially distant, sending letters because of his status as a prisoner. And he encourages those early believers. He encourages them to remember their identity in Christ. And he talks about the personal nature of, of Jesus, but he's not talking about the private nature of it. He's talking about something communal, something collective. We can, probably because we're in America, because of our own stories or narratives, can be very me-focused or me-centered. And then we hear about the gospel, which is very personal, and then we unintentionally make it something that's private. But that's not the goal. The goal is the kingdom of heaven, Not just later, but here and now. 
Jesus speaks to this in the same gospel in Matthew chapter 5. Go one further to chapter 6. And he introduces what we might know as the Lord's Prayer. You've probably memorized it, but if not, I want to read it. He says, this is then how you should pray. This is Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, many of us stop there, but I think this verse gets even more interesting in verse 14 and 15. Are you ready for it? For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's comforting. Verse 15, but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. For many of us, that's probably sobering. In this prayer, Jesus is reminding us the purpose of following him. It's to be recipients, to be participants in his story. And not just a story later, but a story now. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we say at American University, at Georgetown University, on campuses in D.C. as it is in heaven. But then verses 14 and 15 remind us that our relationship with God isn't separate, isn't segmented from our relationship with others, but that it's all to be integrated. I mean, we're literally told if we forgive others, God will forgive us. But if we don't forgive others, he will not forgive us. We don't like talking about it, but there's like a condition on God's forgiveness. And that condition is that we would be gracious and forgiving to others. Now, I can't do that in my own strength. I can't do that at the grocery store. I can't do that on social media. And I can't do that in real life by my own act of will. I need the Spirit. I need Jesus to show me not just how to love Him, but how to love those around me. Today, the big idea is that Jesus is the lens. So I think it's important that we recognize that there are many other lenses around us that we could be using. Lenses to view scripture, but also lenses to view the world around us. And sometimes those lenses seem promising. They seem hopeful. And even they contain a little bit of truth. There are lenses that our universities and institutions are trying to hand us. There are lenses that your future employer or maybe your family are handing you. But as believers, we experience freedom when we discard those lenses and pick up Jesus as the only lens that we need. I heard another pastor say this, and I thought it was very appropriate for this cultural moment and this time that we're in. And he was talking about politics, and he says, if you just focus on the values of the stated and lived out values and individual responsibility as a believer, which does exist even though it's a collective experiment, he says that might lead you to vote or believe that Jesus is a Republican. But then he went on to say that if you look at the 2,000 passages in the Old and New Testament about the poor and about our role in caring for them, if you look at the way Jesus aligned himself with those who would not even be considered clean or acceptable by religious standards of the day, when you see that he has rich and poor, 
listening to him talk about a new way of life. If you looked at the world from that type of perspective and you saw Jesus' miracles as an extension of supernatural help to the hurting, then you might find in your own mind that Jesus is a Democrat and that's how you choose to vote. But what we are being taught in Scripture from the life of Jesus is that Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is King. And that yes, although we are citizens of this country or whatever country you're residing in, although we live on the planet Earth, which I promise is not flat, we first recognize our citizenship as being one that is spiritual being one that's of heavenly nature. I was having this conversation the other day with my wife Hannah, and uh, I was talking to her um, about this idea um, about kind of how does our political affiliation and identification and faith collide or intersect. And she made this really interesting point. She says, you can't be a Christian and a Democrat, but you also can't be a Christian and a Republican. And I thought it was really interesting because she's speaking to something that's so key. She says, you can't put your identity in two places. You can put your identity in Christ, and then you may, as an expression of your understanding of the gospel, vote a certain way, but you're not necessarily designed to say, well, I'm identifying as a Christian and as this other thing, no matter how good this other thing looks. Whether it's a political party, whether it's being an American, maybe for you it's localized, it's being from the South, it's being from California, whatever it is. We talk about this almost every year around this time, and it's a question that I love asking when we're doing campus ministry in real life. So imagine that you're on campus with me, We're wearing masks, of course, and we're drinking some coffee, maybe from the bridge, maybe from um, the library in Club Lao at Georgetown. And it's this question is, are you a college student that's a Christian, or are you a Christian that's studying in college? Now, yes, it is one of those pastoral trick questions, but I'll skip to the answer. It's that I fully believe that as we read Scripture, our identity should always be centralized in Jesus. So you are a Christian that happens to be in a season of studying, happens to be in a season of being a college student. Jesus had to teach the disciples to unlearn their other lenses and identities because not only was he asking to be first, he was asking to be the only. Now, it's really difficult when times are tough to really imagine that God is with us. Sometimes it can be difficult for me. But when I read the words of Jesus, I'm filled with hope. Not because I see easy solutions to civil unrest or police brutality. Not because I think that one election is going to kind of turn the tide on my hopes and dreams for what America could look like. No, I see hope in Jesus as he calls me to himself. Yes, we should be engaged in the world around us. Yes, we should leverage all of our resources, all of our privilege to help those who don't have a voice or whose voice isn't listened to. But the story of the gospel is one of surrendering to a king. And very few of us want to name a king in our lives other than ourselves. But notice, circle back to what Tozer said. The most important thing 
about you is what you think about God. It's not what you think about yourself, what you think about scripture, what you think about your pastor. It's what you think about God. The original hymn book of scripture is the Psalms. And what I love about the Psalms, whether it's David or the sons of Korah or some other randos that are writing this music, is that they are bringing all of their emotions, all of their pain, all of their suffering to God through song. Now, worship isn't limited to music, but it is certainly expedited by it. Music is this universal language that helps us to tap into what we're really feeling and can't name, what we're really thinking but can't fully express. And what I love is that there's no censorship in the book of Psalms. There are some Psalms that are violent, that are difficult, that are hard to read, and that never end up on a bumper sticker, on a t-shirt, or on an Instagram graphic. But that is the type of real relationship that God wants to have with us. See, your biggest doubts, your hardest questions for God, do not scare Him. As you continue to engage with Chi Alpha, or maybe your local church, I want to encourage you to ask questions. Now, don't ask questions to make a point, but ask questions to learn and grow. Around here, we really do believe that every conversation is spiritual, which means that questions, even hard ones, should be asked. We don't want to sweep anything under the rug because we have nothing to hide. We believe that Jesus is the lens for which we are to see Scripture and the world around us. The Psalms, these original lyrics that we read, you know, are written primarily by this person, David, who has a very problematic story. But he's also talked about as having a heart like the heart of Father God. And I think it's because he was so in tune with what was right and with what was wrong in his inner life. And he didn't keep it a secret, but he brought it out in worship. See, so many of us think that worship is putting on our best face, our best shirt, our loudest voice, trying to sing on pitch. But our worship is really putting our attention on God and bringing all of our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to Him. See, what I've discovered is this. If that Jesus isn't the lens for all of our emotions, all of our questions, then He'll only be the lens for part of who we are and not for all of who we are. And the downside to that is that we'll never become fully who God's designed us to be. Many of us, we only relate to God in seasons where things are going well. Um, And then when things are going bad, we turn to other things, healthy and unhealthy habits to help us process pain and stress. Or maybe you're in an inverse situation where you feel really close to God when things are going bad. You feel like he's a refuge and he's a comfort. But when things are going really well, you might tend to take the credit. You might tend to forget who he is. And that's honestly kind of my natural inclination. When things are bad, I feel myself drawing close to him, having extended abiding time, singing worship songs at the top of my lungs, being honest with the difficulties I'm experiencing with God. But then when things are good, I tend to pay less attention to him. And Jesus, through his life, through his miracles, through his sermons, is saying that is not a viable or sustainable option. So whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're feeling, it might be scary to think about sharing it with a friend or even sharing it with God. But he desires to be the lens. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He did not come to erase, but he came to put an exclamation point on the redemption plan of God, pursuing 
you and I. And here's my prayer for you. It comes from Psalms. It's that mercy and goodness would follow you all the days of your life. And that this week, you would experience the pursuit of God and that you would open up to Jesus a little bit more about the good stuff and the bad stuff as we as a community try to have the right lens to interact with Scripture and the world around us.